Hello, you're listening to the 10 by 9 podcast, true stories from the people who lived them. I'm Paul Doran, co-founder of 10 by 9 with Padre Gotoma. There are four stories on this podcast, and while they are all about very different things, the one thing linking them is the mommy. And we've got a whole new format for you, starting in Belfast, travelling across the globe to Adelaide, then some time travelling as we whip out a story from the archives, before returning to the present and Belfast. We start with Sarah Neal, who told this story at the Black Box in Belfast on February 27, 2019, when the theme was danger. There are many times in my life when I've been in danger or engaged in risky behaviour, intentionally or otherwise, and I've decided to let Paul fix the mic. No. <laughs> I've decided to rate them on a danger scale. So we'll start with the three years between the ages of 18 to 21, when I spent six nights a week at various bars, pubs and clubs, and yet still hope to be given a degree at the end of it. <laughs> Do have one, thanks Desmond. That's a three out of 10. Um, what about the time when I was living in a village in California, and as I walked to Starbucks, Someone mowing their lawn called me over for a chat. Now, people in LA aren't generally that friendly, but it turns out they've been watching a homeless man follow me up the street, crossing exactly where I'd crossed, and they thought that this naive 22-year-old might need a safe lift to her skinny latte. Maybe a five out of 10. Or what about the time a few years later, when under my usual bravado and a slight cloak of wine-fueled courage, I told my friends that I didn't need them to wait with me for a taxi out of the Belfast city centre in the early hours. And then I mistakenly got into an unmarked car and was driven to Wasteland before I started screaming that I needed to get out. Certainly frightening, but not harmed. A five out of 10, which, all right, okay, it's gonna get better. Raised to an 8 out of 10 when I spoke to the police the next day and they told me that the firm that this driver had claimed to be from simply doesn't exist anymore. Or the time that I shouted back at the woman in the queue of Thompson's. Now, if you've ever been to Thompson's, you'll know that's a solid 8.5 out of 10. Or when a previous news editor sent me alone to cover a story about a death, potentially at that stage a murder in an estate, And after chatting to one of the victim's friends through their living room window, he very friendly invited me in. But it wasn't until I got inside the flat that I realised it was less of a home and really more of a drug den, and I probably shouldn't be there. I think I'd give that a 6 out of 10. Well, with all of these, and that's a very short summary of all the dangerous things that I've done, all of these experiences, who knew that the person with whom I'd be in most danger would be my 5 foot 3 mother? Now, let me explain a little bit about my mum. This is my mum, and that's me on the left. So just for scale, um, that's why I'm beside her. She is small. Um, If you'll notice, I'm in flat shoes, and I'm also standing down a curb, and I'm still a lot taller than her. She's little. (laughs) Family urban legend has it that mum was just six stone when she got married, and four and a half when when she went into first year of secondary school. Oh, this is my mum as well. Um, Here she is making pancakes with her grandson. She's very cute. They're both very cute. Mum looks lovely, loves Coronation Street. She's got a cracking sense of humour and we frequently laugh together so much that um, she's in danger of having a body malfunction. She gives great advice and she's the first person I go to with problems. 
My mum has been involved in basically every committee there's ever been for running our church over the last 33 years. So Mother's Union, Young Families, Catering, mum's there. Uh, she's a former teacher, a maths teacher, so you can understand that she's not a fun teacher. She's a cross one and it's kind of a running joke in a family that I would never want to be one of her pupils. And you know that quote, though she be but little, she is fierce? written about my mum. So as a bit of background, I've been thinking of getting a small tattoo, a tribute to someone that mum and I both love very much, who we lost very recently. But I forgot to tell you the things that my mum disapproves of probably most in the world. So one on the list would be hair dyed on natural colours, any other piercings other than one in each earlobe, tattoos and telling lies. So. A tattoo on my foot, which would be the chosen place for this tribute, couldn't really be hidden and it would need to be discussed. So my chosen place for discussing this was a small coffee shop in East Belfast. Mum, how mad would you be if I got a tattoo? Her face crumpled. No, no, it would be just terrible. Have you got one? No. Don't. It would be awful. Have you got one? No. Yes. And so it seemed that the foot tattoo was off the table, but now was apparently the time to tell her about the marking that I got in a cockroach-ridden tattoo shop in Thailand after spending all day on a booze cruise. Which we have, yeah. So, um, <laughs> hashtag body positivity. I'm here somewhere in a bikini with a belly full of pad thai and beer. You can imagine the decisions that I was making after this. Yeah. Mum started wailing. Where is it? Where? What is it? It's a shamrock. It's actually not a shamrock, it's a four-leaf clover, but I'm not sure that that is any less cliched. <laughs> Where is it? It's, it's on my ribs. It, it's only we. The wailing started again. Why would you do that? I, I don't know. I wasn't sure that it was safe to say that I'd had some kind of cheap vodka-fueled midlife crisis in Thailand and decided that marking my body was representative of all the luck I'd ever have in my life, but to be honest, I don't even really believe in luck. I never thought you would be the person who would do that. Mum, I've had it for a year. You haven't noticed. I'm still the same person. It's only we. Well, that's bigger than you said it was a moment ago. <laughs> it's only we, and at least I don't have to lie to you now. Do you want to see it? I asked with a nervous smile stretched painfully across my face. You lied when you said you didn't have one the first time. I, I know, I panicked. Do you want to see it? No! I decided now was the time to move on to a different topic so that we didn't draw any more attention to ourselves in this tiny coffee shop. Who am I kidding? I was terrified of this little terrier across the table. An hour or so later, as I dropped mum to the bus stop, I reached the car, reached across the car and put my hand on hers, a token of the bonding of the mostly lovely afternoon that we'd spent just the two of us, which is quite a rare occurrence. She slapped my hand. That's for being bold. <laughs> I'm 33. I turned to look at her. Now, Mum, you're not to be too annoyed. I've had it for a year. You haven't noticed any change in me as a person. But you disfigured your body. That wailing tone was back. You disfigured your body. Me, ever the fact finder. Well, technically, Mum, I didn't. A man did. <laughs> you paid a man to disfigure your body. It wasn't very much money, and you're, you're going to miss your bus. I kissed her cheek as she got out of the car. Her eyebrows were still fiercely furrowed into a very distressed face. Oh, the disappointment. 
As she toddled off to the bus stop, I knew what was coming next. She was dying to get home to tell Dad, and they sit and wonder between them where had it all gone wrong. What bad boyfriend or naughty friend had talked me into this, had led me astray? Mum was very quiet for a day or two. Normally we fire text messages back and forth pretty much all day, every day, but there were very few texts or WhatsApp pings going on. This weekend passed, I gathered up all the courage I could and braved the trip home to call in with my parents. They seemed grand. They were chatting about church and the grandkids and the latest on my granny's hearing aid, which still only works when she switches it on and most of the time she chooses not to. (laughs) I've dodged a bullet, I thought. No mention. Maybe she hasn't even told that. Until one last remark. Oh, people with those awful tattoos. How terribly low. Fired like a series of tiny daggers aimed directly at me and my four-leaf clover. So where does that sit on my danger scale? Absolutely, 10 out of 10. Thanks very much, Sarah. And one small thing, Sarah, we haven't seen this tattoo. Meanwhile, in Adelaide in Australia, 10 by 9 is run by Mel Lambert, originally from Northern Ireland, and Danny Madsen, who lived in Belfast for several years before going back down under. They start their event with an acknowledgement of country, which you can hear on our Adelaide podcasts. The story in this podcast was told in 2017, and the theme was older. Here's first-timer Susan Mitchell. Grand occasions were never a strength in my family. An only child of middle-aged parents who seemed to have nothing in common but me, I knew almost from the beginning that I was responsible for their well-being and their happiness. I knew when I was four and made to lie down in the afternoons. I knew by the slant of the sun through the faded blind and the sluggish silence. I knew why my mother had ended up here in the sleeping suburbs and I swore it would never happen to me. Lucky the children of mothers who don't believe in Mother's Day. Easy when little to get through. Breakfast on a tray, white flowers and a card with a big red heart. Perhaps a few trinkets chosen from Woolworths, paid for with saved and precious pocket money. Later on, it wasn't so easy. No grandchildren, just the three of us. I took them out to restaurants of my choice where the day was never mentioned. Daunted by the silver service and which knife and fork to use, they smiled a lot but didn't say much. To restaurants of their choice we went, with five courses, a white flower for all the mothers in the room, and a person at an electric organ playing requests. But one day, such rituals were no longer possible. Now that walking had become a difficulty and eating seemed to have become the vehicle through which my mother chose to voice her protest against the world. When she could take up to half an hour to eat her morning egg, restaurants were out. But out was where my mother wanted to go. Not that I could blame her. Domiciliary care and meals on wheels were the high spots in her day. Her husband preferred his chooks. Knowing the day was looming, I asked my mother where she would like to go this year. A drive, a nice drive in the country. It's good to get out and see the world. I asked my mother what she would like to eat. A Big Mac. Was she sure? 
I want one with everything, just like on the telly. <laughs> Knowing the Honda Civic wasn't big enough, I rang a hire car company. The governor had booked their only Mercedes, so I settled for next best, a Chrysler LTD. The day dawned sunny. The day did not dawn. The day settled around me like a noose. I could feel the rough male kiss of rope on my neck. I thought of taking a Valium, but remembered the Christmas when it rendered me speechless and unable to even get the turkey out of the oven. <laughs> Drink was out as I had to drive. Food was out as I was on a diet. You're late, said my father. Half an hour late, said my mother. I had to pick up the car, I said. Could have used mine, said my father. Whose car is it, dear, said my mother. I hired it. Waste of money, said my father. I had to back the car out of the driveway. Mother's walking frame would not fit between the fence and the car door. Patiently, I steered mother towards the back seat. Mother was wearing her new pantsuit. Trousers were now essential to cover up the swollen arthritic knees. As we edged our way, snail-like, along the cement path, I noticed that her makeup was slightly out of alignment. Her eyebrows had that permanently surprised look. <laughs> my heart leapt into my mouth. This day was mother's big day. They'd tried to give me their best, and now it was my turn. You look very smart today, my darling, if you say so, my dear. One step too many, and mother had managed to wedge herself, or rather her frame, in the gutter. She started to fall backwards. Lean forward, Mum. What, dear? Catching her with both hands. For Christ's sake, Mum, lean forward. <laughs> Don't speak to me like that, dear. I thought my back might break with the weight. She ain't heavy, she's my mother. <laughs> What's that, dear? Fearing total collapse. I said... Fucking lean forward. <laughs> I won't have you using that language. She was listing at what now seemed a 75 degree angle. <laughs> Safely inside the car, mother continued. All the education we have given you and you still talk like someone from the gutter. <laughs> That's where you would have been, mum, if I hadn't been so strong. I would rather have fallen than heard those words come out of your mouth <laughs> and on Mother's Day. <laughs> we crawled through the Sunday afternoon traffic with father barking out driving instructions. Your presents are in the back window, Mother. Father sees them, a territorial imperative. They're mine, Mother said. I'll help you, he said, ripping the paper off the largest one. Another pantsuit, he said, dropping it in her lap. You've torn the paper. What do you want to keep that stuff for? All over the house? With grim determination, her crooked hands smoothed out the wrapping paper and folded it neatly. When are we going to eat? Soon, Dad. Soon. Desperately scanning the graveyard of used car lots for a giant M, I wondered if it really was possible to kill yourself by jumping out of a moving car. <laughs> With my luck, I'd end up in a wheelchair, a loving testimony to martyrdom. Every Mother's Day, they'd bring me white flowers and take me out for a drive. There are some things worse than death. 
Saved by a miraculous M looming up at me, I cut across three lanes of traffic and screeched to a, to a skidding stop. Jesus Christ, said my father. Mother was still attempting to unwrap the other present. I ran towards the restaurant, carbon monoxide ballooning my nostrils. What's this, dear, said mother, eyeing off the bag I handed her. It's what you ask for, Big Mac, French fries and an apple pie. Eat it while it's hot. Same for you, Dad. I didn't ask for this, dear. <laughs> yes, you did, Mum. When did I? Eat it while it's hot, said Father, tucking his hanky into the top of his collar. We sped down South Road, turning up the radio to drown out the rhythmic clack of loose dentures. I wondered if perhaps I was premenstrual. <laughs> Is it possible to create a world record for the length of time it takes to eat a Big Mac? <laughs> Mother clearly had no notion of the term fast food. <laughs> An hour later, I reminded myself to contact the Guinness Book of Records. This looks like a nice spot for afternoon tea, I said, as I could wait no longer for a glass or several of the champagne that I knew was in the hamper. Better to risk the breathalyzer than face a murder charge. <laughs> Water torture had nothing on the gnawing of a Big Mac. <laughs> Unable to lay my hand immediately on the champagne corker, I pulled the cork out with my teeth. <laughs> champagne, Dad? French. Bought it specially. I'm a beer man myself. It's wasted on me, that good stuff. The champagne was cold. So too was the water in the thermos. What a shame. I was so looking forward to a nice cup of tea, said Mother. You haven't finished your lunch yet, said Father. Like a Japanese train, we shot through the countryside. My parents hardly daring to look left or right. Fields and forests flashed by. I concentrated on the white line dividing the grey bitumen. Side by side in the velvet luxury of the back seat, they slept. I saw them in the rear vision mirror, wrinkled faces, flushed with the warmth of the car heater. How many times as a child had I nestled into the softness of my mother or felt the strong arms of my father lift me gently out of the car? Even in my younger days, they always took me with them to parties. I saw in the mirror a mother who had loved to dance, a mother who had loved to bake, a mother who had loved to sew, a mother who had loved. When they bought their first car, a Morris Minor, I had insisted on sitting between them, a cushion specially placed by my father on the top of the handbrake. <laughs> the three of us together in the front seat, facing the road ahead. Thank you very much. You can read that story and others in Susan's book, Splitting the World Open, Taller Poppies and Me. And before we come home, here's co-host Danny. So as we were preparing for tonight and knowing that we had a partnership with Cota and Zestfest, um, it actually occurred to me that I should talk to my own mother about telling a story. And she said, oh, don't be silly, I, don't, I can't tell a story. But my mum is somebody who actually has a real zest for life and she's quite proud of what she can do for her age. And just to give you a little example of this, when I first started dating my current partner, Shane, I rang my mum and said, I, I think I've met someone. And the first thing that came out of her mouth was, 
well, I hope you've told him how good I look for my age. <laughs> it's a true story. I've met Danny's mum and she is indeed a very fine woman. Now, one from the archive, here's Louise Nealon. She told this in the black box when the theme was young in April 2017. My family think I have a problem with oversharing, so uh, this is my oversharing. Um, I wasn't even a year old before I had to endure my first experience of unrequited love. His name was Bart and he was yellow. I have my mother to thank for capturing the look of pure adoration that you can see on the screen in front of you, my younger self ogling the fine figure of an older man as he whizzed past me with a demented smile on his face, his legs hugging the seat of his bouncing buggy and his eyes fixed firmly on the terrain of Lino in front of him. My older brother is out of the camera shot on his knees like an altar server, waiting for Bert to stop so we could wind him up again. I would, be, I would patiently wait for my beloved's vehicle to be serviced until I could watch the illusion of perfection cross my path once more. He was different to the other potato-headed humans I had seen. He was potty trained, able to sit upright, and was in full possession of a driver's license. His hair defied gravity and he had four fingers instead of the commonplace five. I knew that I was the one for him, but no matter how much I stared, not once did he give me so much as a second glance as he hurtled towards the rest of his life on a solo tra 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 trajectory across the surface of my kitchen floor. If I could remember Bart properly without the help of this photograph, I'm sure I would view him through the same bit of prism of hindsight that I used to distance myself from the wounds of my other failed conquests. John Smith from Pocahontas, Tommy from Rugrats, and Poe from the Teletubbies. <laughs> For a while there, if they weren't cartoons, they weren't worth considering. By the time I got around to fancying boys in real life, I had a sceptical view of love. My first alliance was with a younger man that lasted nearly all of Big Break. I was in sixth class and he was in fifth. I became incensed when he attempted to speak to me, and I told Amanda to tell Quiva to tell James to tell Paul to tell Merton that it was over. When I started secondary school, I decided that soaking the face off a young lad around the back of a prefab was too high a price to play for popularity. The next thing I knew, I was 16 and too mortified to admit that I'd never been kissed. For years, I had sworn by the testimony that I shifted an 18-year-old behind the slide in a water park on holidays in Fort Frontera, and he copped a feel of my non-existent chest as well. The anecdote was so detailed that I almost believed it myself. My first actual case was the stuff of nightmares. My sister knew the truth about the legend of the 18-year-old boy behind the slide in the water park on holidays in Fort Frontera, and sought to rectify my frigid status due to the fact that I was sliding her down the, the status quo in school, as she was guilty by association. <coughs> the incident took place in a sweaty teenage disco soon after my 16th birthday. When I say I was much too old for teenage discos, I was close to the age of the supervisors, lurking in the shadows, making sure that the slobbering didn't venture into X-rated territory. My sister accosted a 12-year-old with oozing pustules around his mouth and offered me up to him in the same way that you'd offer someone a spare pencil. <laughs> By the time my lips were shoved into the bristles of, his, of the moustache he was trying to grow, I thought I was going to vomit in his mouth. Through the years, I've learned to battle my phobia of exchanging saliva with another human. Although, it was a rare occasion when I kissed a boy I actually liked. 
So I threw myself into college work and was left to my own devices until an agricultural science student showed up in our farm looking for work placement. Tommy Conroy was the son of a farmer with plenty of road frontage down in West Mead. There were three sons in, in the family and even though he was the eldest, he wasn't guaranteed the farm because his father was a bollocks. <laughs> he played football for UCD and he was lovely and tall. Isn't he lovely and tall, man goes. And he always brings his plate over to the sink when he's finished his dinner. He didn't go as far as putting it into the dishwasher yet, but that was beside the point. She was smitten. Mama had just come back from the airport that morning, dewy-eyed after waving my brother off on his six-week holiday to Australia and Thailand, and returned to find a substitute son waiting for her in the form of a strapping young lad from Westmead. The closest thing to a son that she could get was a son-in-law, and that's where I came in. My parents were well accustomed to using the aspects of farming life the way some people would use Tinder. They both came from dairy farms and were matched by the local milkman, who told them everything they needed to know about each other before they laid eyes on each other. Sitting at the breakfast table waiting for Tommy Conroy to come in from the yard was like being on the set of Fair City. The door squeaked open, the poor unsuspecting fucker walked in. <laughs> And lights, camera, action, everyone turned into a caricature of themselves. Dad showed his affection in the only way he could, by playing games that involved mild torture, like how long can you keep your hand on the scalding hot teapot game, while Mam showed affection by disapproving of such games. They got his life story out from the first day at breakfast. The fact that he had a long-term girlfriend didn't really matter. He would have to get over her. They had a single daughter on their hands, and together we could monopolise Glambia. I tried to sneak looks at him and decided that he looked like a 12-year-old that had been stretched. A little boy's body, a little boy's face and a lanky body that was coordinated for the specific purpose of milking cows. Dad was explaining to him that the names of the fields are called after the people we bought or rented them off. Crows, Nancys, Christies, Mary Dillons, Neelys, all except for the stretch of fields out the back of the slurry pit called the Scribeen. It took me a couple of mornings at the breakfast table listening to Tommy's vocabulary of our farm expand to realise that I was jealous of him. Although I took an extra five minutes getting ready to go down to the kitchen in the morning anyway, changing out of my pyjamas and hot chocolate stained dressing gown, washing my face and pulling my hair back into a ponytail. No one likes a slob. Dad came in last night, or Dad came in one night after checking on a cow and shaded upstairs. Louise, yeah. Come here, will you make brown bread for tomorrow morning? Dad, it's 11 o'clock at night. Ah, you will. I will not. He wanted Tommy Conroy to see what I could do in the kitchen. <laughs> he wouldn't mention all the batches of bread that went horribly wrong at the start, the ones he still ate, even though they were burnt on the outside and pink in the middle. Here, I gave Sean the evening off tomorrow. Will you do a milking for me? Do I have a choice? Ah, you will. Of course, he arranged for me to milk with Tommy. It would have gone fine if he left me alone. He did leave me alone for the most part, except when he put an extra red yoke beside one of the cows. She's a three spinner I shaded over the milking machine. None of you'll get this, but it's grand. It makes no difference to the story. Putting down the extra red yoke. He came over to see what I was on about and put the red yoke back up. That's what I thought, but she kept sucking, so I checked. Two of the teeth don't work, she's a two spinner. I put the red yoke back down. She's always been a three spinner. Suit yourself, she'll only keep sucking here. I continued down the line putting the milk machines on, ignoring the loud sucking sounds coming from the three spinner, who is really a two spinner, and the smirk on Tommy Conroy's face. 
She was always a three-spinner, I friend. Ah, don't worry about it, he said. You have a lump of shite in your eye. <laughs> Thanks, I said, trying to wipe it away with my dirty plastic glove. He laughed. You'll only make it worse. Come here to me. He looked at me. And there was a moment in the cow-shite-covered milking hovel when I could see potential for my parents' creepy plan to come to fruition. But then, a flash of his Facebook profile picture that I had stalked an hour earlier passed across my eyes. He was looking down on, at his midget of a girlfriend who was wearing matted velour tracksuit with Ugg boots. She had a bit of a belly, greasy hair and wore hoop earrings. I knew I could take her. <laughs> but I recognised the way that he looked at her. It was the way I looked at Barrett all those years ago. I squirmed away from his hand on my head. Fuck off, I said. <laughs> Suit yourself. I opened the gate and let the cows off. He power hosed down the sides in silence, and I continued milking, trying to spot two spinners and ignoring the lump of shite in the corner of my eye. <laughs> Ah, rural Irish life. Anyway, back to the present and our night of danger. Here's Joe Nawaz, and you have been warned, there is the odd F-bomb. When I was in P5, my mother would say, don't dilly-dally after school, come straight home. Tell a lie. She'd say, get your arse home after school pronto. For God's sake, who's going to take anyone seriously who says dilly-dally? It was a brief walk to and from my school, especially if you knew, like I did, the secret way through the side streets and alleyways that directly connected my primary school gates to our back door. One fateful day though, possibly after one too many Ribenas, me and the lads, Neil and Brian, who also walked home, made the daring decision to mount an expedition to Botanic Gardens. I mean, it was sort of, exactly, it was kind of near the school, but I'd have to actually walk past my house to get to it. But I could do that without being spotted. We reckoned we'd go to Botanic Gardens for a bit of an old play. <laughs> and still be back home in a decent time. If I full-on scampered, I'd be back in time for Godzilla and a mere raised eyebrow from my mum. Ten minutes later, there we were in Botanic Gardens, collecting conkers, throwing the infirm ones unfit for stringing at each other. That's what nine-and-a-half-year-old boys do when they need to discard something quickly. They throw it at a friend. As the dodging and weaving took on a frantic, almost choreographed life of its own, a three-boy murmuration, if you will, our time concluded far too quickly. One last spot of tomfoolery, and we agreed to part ways. The lads lived in the opposite direction to me and headed off whilst I absentmindedly and faithfully threw one last conquer in the direction of a bushy enclave. It was to be the last conquer I ever hurled at a bushy enclave. As I turned to make my way back towards the front gates, I heard a stirring, or rather, a howling emanating from the bushy enclave. Oi! It was two hitherto unnoticed, older, angry, and scary-looking boys emerging from the bushy enclave. I looked around, but there was only me. Were you trying to hit us? You were! They decided before I had a chance to explain that no, I was not in point of fact trying to hit these two terrifyingly large and muscular horrors. As they strode towards me, my fight-or-flight instinct kicked in and opted for plan C, frozen to the spot gawping. <laughs> the bigger and scarier of the two roughly grabbed my arm. What school do you go to? 
That hoary but much-loved old local chestnut, the answer to which betrays a ticker tape of coded information about the answerer. Mercifully, though, all of this happened a couple of years before my school, St Bride's Primary School, introduced a uniform with the telltale motif of a giant gold St Bridget's cross on the school jumper, <laughs> like papish crosshairs right over our hearts. <laughs> what school do you go to? They said again. I had seconds to answer them. I quickly glanced at my interviewers. One's eyes were slightly too close together. <laughs> and the others so far apart, it wasn't certain that they shared a postcode. <laughs> so that was no help. I panic guessed that they were most likely from the nearby Sandy Row area. I'm a Protestant, they squeaked. For a moment, they seemed satisfied. I relaxed, but they weren't satisfied. We didn't ask you what you were said the larger, meaner looking, and infinitely more annoying of the two. We asked you what school you went to. Think, I screamed in my head. All I could think of saying was, not St. Bride's, definitely not St. Bride's. <laughs> Which would have sort of defeated the purpose, really. The scarier one with the two close eyes said, is it Fullerton? Referring to the nearby posh Protestant prep school. Yes, of course it's Fullerton, Fullerton House. I babbled way too quickly and way too gratefully. You do look like a Fenian though said the dark-haired, slightly less scary and smaller one, doubtfully. The one I thought I had a rapport with. <laughs> Thanks, fellow puny dark-haired runt, I thought. Yes, said Scary Spice. True, he does. I toyed with the idea of coming clean and saying, In fact, lads, I'm a Catholic Muslim. Long story. Hey, tell me about it. <laughs> but something told me that would not have made things better. I just bowed my head and hoped that they'd get bored. They did seem to be losing momentum. I heard they let Fenians in the Fullerton shirt, said Scary Spice. Puny Spice was not convinced. What's your name? He asked. Uh, Stephen? Stephen Wilson? I sounded like I was asking them. <laughs> I suspected that Joseph Nawaz would not have gone down quite as easily. <laughs> Stephen, I said Scary Spice absently. They were definitely getting bored. I began to slowly pull my arm away from the grip of Scary Spice when he regrouped and had a brilliant idea. We'll take him back to Uncle Billy's. He'll know what to do. My blood ran cold. I am in so much trouble, I thought. It must be 4pm by now and Mum is going to kill me. Sure, we can get Uncle Billy's gun, added Scary Spice. Unless Uncle Billy kills me first, was probably my follow-up thought. This idea pepped them both up. Beauty Spice grabbed my other arm and they suggested that if I tried to run, they'd get me. The chat wasn't up to much as we left Botanic Gardens for Uncle Billy's house. <laughs> I did glean that Uncle Billy lived in Tate's Avenue and the Spice Boys went to Fane Street Primary School. The school my mother always threatened to send me to if I didn't behave. It was the stuff of fearsome nightmares around our way. This did not lift my spirits. Their grip never slackened on my arms. I desperately tried to wriggle free at one point, but they just laughed at my pathetic efforts. Do that again and we'll finish she now. They laughed at my pathetic efforts. Fair enough, I thought, with the added mantra, I am in so much trouble, growing louder and louder in my head, soundtracking the percolating horror of my predicament. Here I was, going with the Spice Lads to Uncle Billy's house to get his gun and ascertain whether or not I was a Fenian. And then what? Shoot me? It couldn't be that, surely. Kids don't do that sort of thing. But maybe Uncle Billy did. Maybe it was a spud gun. But why did Uncle Billy have a spud gun in the house? And why did I need to see it? 
Of course it wasn't a spud gun, Joe. It's a real gun with real bullets. But I'm just a kid. It did not seem remotely fair. We were now approaching Wellesley Avenue, the street where I happened to live. They were about to walk straight past it when I went for broke. Fuck it, I'd be dead in 15 minutes anyway. <laughs> I helpfully suggested that the quickest route to Uncle Billy's was up Wellesley Avenue. I held my breath as they deliberated. This was it, my one chance to get away and not find out what lay in store for me at Uncle Billy's. Bless him. There was an agonized pause. Then they agreed with me. God knows why they thought I'd be keen to speed up my appointment with Doom. <laughs> Especially when moments later they cheerfully informed me that Uncle Billy shoots Fenians. Even ones that claim to go to Fillerton House, my whiny inner voice mused hopefully, but not entirely convinced that that would be a deal breaker for Uncle Billy. We were getting closer to my house, number 36. I tensed in anticipation. I'd have one shot at this. One shot! What a choice of words. I started flexing my tiny biceps in readiness to break. I asked it to stop for a second, because I needed to, blam! I pulled away with everything I had, just for a second. It worked. There were howls of rage as their pathetic prey legged it the six yards towards his own front gate. I whooped triumphantly as I careered on, their hot angry howls just behind me. I whooped too soon as I tripped on the small step that I always trip on. And they were upon me, enraged, slavering. Fenian bastard! Slippery wee Fenian bastard! Their loud Protestant bellowing was their undoing, however. My mum emerged at the front door, surveying this bizarre tableau. What the hell's going on? The Spice Boys realised they'd been duped. The little shits turned on a sixpence. Just uh, walking Stevie home for you, missus. Said Scary Spice, suddenly all teeth and twinkles. The shameless wee fucker. My mum didn't thank them. Get the fuck out of my garden, she bellowed instead. They duly obliged, hot-footing at home, tragically empty-handed for Uncle Billy. I did get in trouble that day. I was nearly an hour late, after all. But there's trouble, and there's trouble, isn't there? And the next time my mother threatened to send me to Fane Street for misbehaving, I think she was surprised at just how contrite I suddenly seemed to be. <laughs> Sectarianism. It's so cute. That's it from this edition of the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to Sarah, Susan, Danny, Louise and Joe. And thanks for listening. 10 by 9 is always free, but if you want to help cover our costs, you can donate on our website, 10 by 9com And remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Our theme tune comes from the Free Music Archive and is by Fantastic Swimmers, while our incidental music is by Brent Bourgeois, sourced at Facebook Sounds. For now, bye-bye.